Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for January the 18th, a Tuesday show today. And wow, we are digging out and getting out from under a massive blizzard. Don't overuse the word blizzard. Okay, the next time we get six centimeters, that was not a blizzard. There's no blizzard-like conditions. That's yesterday. That gets its own documentation and verbiage. It's pretty bad. So we talk a lot about that uh, on the show and as well get to many other things, including a student for a student advocacy group named uh, Sophia Alexanian that is taking a stand and saying, we want a voice. We want to be heard. This can't just be about the government, the minister of education, the premier, the teachers, the boards, the unions. Kids need a voice also, and we have not done right by them in not giving them as much of a voice as we should have done in the last 18, 19 months when it comes to schools. That's for sure. So we get there on this edition of Toronto Today, which begins now. Uh, yesterday was really something. I heard two things, and we want to be the pulse of the city. This show does, Toronto Today. We want to feel uh, your heartbeat while you feel ours. That's a bizarre song lyric. But what I heard was kids got outside. Kids were kids again. As we said about half an hour ago, almost nobody talked about COVID-19 yesterday, which was great. Look, it's still real. It's still intense. It's still concerning. There's trepidation about schools. We're going to have a great guest on, a student advocate for safe schools in this uh, go back uh, in about 12 minutes from now. Uh, I spoke to her yesterday and I'm not, this is a live interview, but I spoke to her yesterday just to make sure she was comfortable with the process and she's going to come on with us. She's a grade 11 student, 16 year old, brilliant. You will really enjoy this chat coming up around 7.20 this morning. Um, but uh, but people just like were smiling at each other and helping each other and being neighborly. And we've oh, my goodness, like we've we've got to get back to that. No one's wearing masks outside. And if they are, if they are, it's because blowing uh, snowblowers are everywhere and they don't want to, you know, a giant uh, snowblow sandwich uh, right in the in the, you know, in the nose and mouth where we emit droplets, uh, allegedly. No, we do. But I, I just thought people were wonderful towards each other yesterday in difficult times. And uh, I hope that's a uh, strategy, that's a policy, if you will, that we can carry forward. And uh, as, as I've said, I've used the uh, metaphor of the boat moving the other way down the river from fear and dis and chaos and, and concern and that's a big start yesterday is just people being kids being kids and parents spending that time with kids and we still got work to do tomorrow's a really really important day in schools speaking of schools uh if you show up at school today um anywhere in the gta in essence you're likely to hear this sorry folks parks closed the moose out front should have told you yeah i like i i don't think anyone's dropping their kid off going have a great day the storm's over no don't do that do not do that um, my dad was like that. He would drive me to school. We'd have like fog delays and he'd be like, well, I got to get to where I'm going. So you're go like, as in his school in the city, which was never, uh, delayed and our school out in the country, Medway high school was constantly delayed. And, uh, quick story. I remember him driving me to school one day and we pass, uh, a, a neighbor and the girl's in the same grade as me, and she's, like, very pretty, very well-to-do, very pretty. She was really cute. And, uh, you know, if you're allowed to have crushes on about six girls at the same time, she was one of those six. That's just how, how it operates in seventh grade, okay? But my dad's like, oh, there's what's-her-name. 
uh, should I pull over and, and offer to give her a ride to school? Because she's waiting for the bus. I'm like, oh, God, Dad, please don't do that. And he does it anyway. And uh, she's like, no, thanks. <laughs> she <laughs> She's not. And then, oh, my gosh, that takes about three weeks uh, of, uh, of awkwardness to work away. I'm like, no, Dad, no, Dad, you don't, you know. My dad was, was more in the Doug Ford uh, mode yesterday where uh, where he's picking uh, people up on a and, and helping them out. And weirdly, my dad was uh, a you know, a high school history teacher and not running for re-election. It's weird how that works itself out. More on that in a little bit. Um, I wanted to bring uh, this up is the concept of uh, where we're going with um, with airport testing in a bit. But I noticed this study. I noticed this study from uh, the United Kingdom. Um, Boris Johnson's under a lot of heat. Right. You've seen this. Right. His personal ratings are declining. And I noticed this with Doug Ford yesterday, that his uh, approval rating is down to about 30 percent. Boris Johnson's numbers uh, have been hugely down. Um, Can the prime minister survive this? We talked about this last week with Paul Waldy from the Globe and Mail, who's based in London. Well, you know, eventually we all move on to different stories and the heat you feel or a politician feels or anybody in the public eye feels usually dissipates after 24, 48 hours. That's just that's just where it's at. But here's a poll from YouGov in the UK. And sometimes I just sort of sniff my sniffy nose up at polls, like if 52% approve of something. That doesn't tell us very much because we're a very divided society right now. But I thought this was significant. On December 16th in the UK, and, and we're, localizing, we're, we're localizing the lead here, and I'm going to bring this back around to Ontario. Don't you worry about it. Fully 75% of people in the United Kingdom on December 16th felt that COVID was getting worse in the UK. Think about how you felt December 16th. That's the Thursday that schools are that's the Thursday before schools are getting out. You've been told to shave down your holiday gatherings. Don't have them at all. Some were were yelling. Um, you know, that's that might have been going into that weekend when we had uh, pandemic Pete's. Stop moaning. Stop complaining. This is we had that. That's around that time that we had that. So think about how that made you feel internally and how you feel matters, how you feel in terms of readjusting to where you go and what you do and who you see. We were doing all that stuff. 75% of people in the United Kingdom on that day thought COVID was getting worse. 9% felt it was getting better. They just did another poll a week ago. 38% up from 9% felt it was getting better. 37% down from 75 felt it was getting worse. What do I read into that? Public anxiety is falling away as fast as the Omicron wave itself. I don't know how else to put it when I see those poll numbers. The, uh, cohort of scientists in the UK. They have modeling in the UK also, kind of like our Ontario Science Table. The cohort of scientists in the UK projected disaster. If we don't lock down for Christmas, we will have a disaster. We will have bodies in parking lots and we will be carrying corpses out of home. Like, honestly, they tried to scare everybody in the United Kingdom. And that disaster kind of just didn't kind of fail to materialize. It spectacularly failed to materialize. So it left people with questions. And probably you have those same questions here about Ontario. What about the previous restrictions? What about all those months that we have spent in Ontario, where you are, trying to navigate these regulations? I don't know anywhere that has our restrictions right now in Europe or in obviously the United States or anywhere else in Canada. Kids are playing minor hockey right now in Alberta. Uh, 
older folks who need to go play. Look at what just happened yesterday. Where can you go for a walk? Uh, shovel, you want a 78-year-old to get his exercise shoveling snow today instead of swimming laps or having a personal, a safe personal training session with a boosted um, personal trainer? Well, that 78-year-old's boosted as well indoors where he can then, you know, take a shower, sit in the sauna, make his own choices. Where do you want that to happen right now? So what happened in the UK also is significant because there are all these parties last week I look at. And, you know, last week these parties, we can start to get news of it. And I wonder in my own mind, does it reinforce sort of a suspicion that a lot of the last two years of what we've done hasn't changed very much? That the pandemic was going to do and the virus was going to do what it was going to do. And if government isn't taking rules seriously, and they weren't in the UK, and we've had examples here in Ontario, across the country in other provinces, officials at the federal level, although less so this Christmas than last Christmas, is it that government's not taking the rules seriously because they know that part of it is theater and that some of the restrictions are pointless? One-way one way arrows in grocery stores still exist. I'm in a grocery store on Sunday night, all right, before the uh, storm comes as we start to go shopping and whatnot. And, uh, and these, these things come over the loudspeaker about every 90 seconds. Blah, 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 staying safe, working together, staying six feet away from other customers. And then – so if you're in the grocery store for 20 minutes, you're hearing this nine times. I can't imagine. I used to work in music retail, and in the Christmas season, after you'd heard the same Christmas song three times, you were about to burst. And that's in normal circumstances. I can't imagine grocery store workers hearing this message. It's very Orwellian. Take those off. Take the plastic barriers down. Take the arrows away. Because no one wants to think that they've been taken for fools. The public has gone along with many of our restrictions. And we sure did at the beginning. We needed to, right? Absolutely. We needed to save long-term care. We needed to protect our elderly. We didn't want any kind of circumstance that left people vulnerable. So we gave authorities trust, even though we thought, well, some of this stuff is really absurd. So I wonder, there's, there's a rage towards politicians, right? There's a rage in the UK towards Boris Johnson. You're mad right now in Ontario at Doug Ford. You're mad maybe at Justin Trudeau. But some of that is also maybe you being embarrassed, Maybe you, you feel even a little bit of shame that we've gone along to get along for as long as we have. For as long as we have. Everybody was wrong about what would happen in the United Kingdom, thus the dramatic shift of opinion. Okay? So if we're going out of this particular pandemic, maybe the way out, maybe the way out is understanding the dramatic shift in opinion can dictate policy. Give you another quick poll. 68% in the UK in uh, early December, as the Omicron wave arrived, opposed closing pubs and restaurants. I would bet you we'd have a lower number here. 64% opposed a stay-at-home order. I bet you we'd have a lower number here. We've been in Ontario for the most part compliant. And remember, we're in a tricky situation here. We have a right-of-center government. We do have that, who's locked us down harder than anybody else on planet Earth right now. I understand some of the reasons and motivation as to why. And we have no opposition parties yelling the lockdown's too harsh. So it's up to you and it's up to me and it's up to all of us to say enough's enough. Next week, you open things back up practically, efficiently, 
and uh, and as well with a abundance of caution to use that phrase. That's the only way out of this that I see. Public anxiety is falling here in Ontario just the same way it is in the UK. And we feel like it's getting better, not worse. Maybe we didn't feel that way on December 16th, but you've seen the tide change and so have I. Yeah, so earlier today, uh, we had a student on from 11th grade uh, who I I just am so, so impressed by uh, this. And again, I think she's not saying, well, I feel unsafe, but she wants everybody to feel as safe as maybe she feels. Uh, We had her on Sophia Alexanian, Ontario Students for COVID Safety, um, and they put a Twitter account together. And I I love that she said, hey, we just don't want to tweet. We we just don't want to be an accountant get some uh, likes and retweets. And I'm like, thank you, God, someone's actually saying this. Uh, But she also documented the struggle. And uh, I maybe coerced her into saying it's a joke because then she used the J word uh, that hybrid learning is, that that's the only virtual learning option kids have right now is live streaming in-person classrooms. Nuh-uh. We need a dedicated teacher to go, hi, kids at home. This is your instructor today. And let's get into some grade 11 geography. That's what we need. Here's what she said on the show. Consider a chemistry classroom, right? The live in-person class is doing a lab. And, you know, what are the online students supposed to do? If it was in a virtual, like, is the teacher supposed to plan some sort of online activity and the lab? And that puts pressure on the teacher and they're not at their best. And also considering that the teacher is teaching the in-person class at the lab. They're using Bunsen burners. There's, There's clear risk. They need full supervision. And the teacher is also supposed to cater to online kids. So who gets lost in the shuffle? You know, it's 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 both the in-person students and the online students. You nailed it. Exactly. The online students. Yep, yep. Uh, that's how it works. And uh, Shiba Siddiqui joins me now. I mean, with your kids in school, with my kids in school, we've seen this. I mean, we've had, yeah, there's had to be a pivot and adjustment and whatnot. But the idea of just watching, like I said to, to her, it's it's like watching a television show in which um, other students your age are getting taught by a teacher and there's no interaction with the online. There's It's no way to learn. It's not an acceptable uh, alternative. Absolutely not. It's been detrimental to my kids. So you know what? We actually, we did it quite differently this time around for the last two weeks. And it actually worked really well. I didn't notice as much of an effect on their mental health negatively as the first time around. We So my youngest, obviously, we pulled him out. He wasn't in Mm -hmm. at all. He's five. There's no way I'm putting, I'm doing that to him ever again. Um, But my other kids, we actually contacted their, their teachers and we only kept them in for language and math. So things like art, drama, gym. All of that, we pulled them off of virtual. Their teachers were cool with it. One of their teachers actually said, great idea. Guess what? I'm doing the same thing with my kids. They're only in for language and math, and that's it. So they had had about two hours of virtual school a day, uh, and it worked out really well because they were just hanging out at home. They were playing outside. They were, yeah, playing some video games mm-hmm. here and there. So they're on a screen. But I noticed a big difference in their mental health. And it's she's right, that student, uh, Sophia. Yeah. How are you going to do a chemistry lab virtually? How does that work? Like how much pressure that is for the teachers and then the kids are stressed out about it and worried about their grades and what they're learning and whether they're getting it right. It's just too much pressure and there's certain things you can't do to these kids anymore. It's it's we have to stand up for them. Nobody yeah. else is. Nobody else is. And and I I've had this conversation a million times with parents or even non-parents who say, "Hey, which age group do you think is is taking it the worst?" And I'm like, 
Well, we all are because parents who who have older kids like mine, we see the runway running out. University parents are stressful. They're paying full freight, Sheba. Kids are sitting in residence. They're uh, they're, they're they've had two or three shots just to even be there. And t- teachers and professors won't go back and teach in front of them right now. I mean, I, I love having Dr. Cam on on Monday because he calls it out and says, I'm, "We're not even." I love that you mentioned that about the high, the teacher saying, "I don't even put my own kids through this because." he said on our airwaves unsolicited their daughter who's graduating from high school she's not going and sitting in a and and they're paying full flip he wants her to have a normal university experience so she'll take a year and and wait this out and it sucks that that even has to be the case because what's the next school year away eight months we can't find a way to do school properly eight months from now you gotta be kidding me well that's what we were saying a year ago i know well a year ago we're saying oh in september everything's going back to normal you were talking about masks being off Look where we are now. So I don't trust anything or anybody anymore. And you have to do what's best for your household, for your kids, for your mental health, for their mental health. That's what we're doing. And honestly, it's working in our household. These kids, I feel, are happy. They do miss their friends, but they're not sitting there on a screen all day listening to a teacher who doesn't want to be there either. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you mentioned masks. I want to bring this up and get your read on it because uh, I know I've been um, vocal about it. But the CDC in the United States did this a few months back, and the media is just sort of noticing it now in the U.S. They're calling for, for cloth masks with clear panels so that you can see a teacher enunciate. Here's who um, – so having a clear plastic panel, I don't know how many of these are easily purchased because most of the cloths we get are from you know Old Navy or the Gap or you order them online, and you can't see people's lips move but but the cdc says who's this for people who are deaf or hard of hearing young children or students learning to read students learning Mm -hmm. a new language people with disabilities people who need to uh, see the proper shape of the mouth for making appropriate vowel sounds i mean to me this sounds like every single human being under the age of seven eight everybody needs that Uh, they do and i would even go a little bit older actually in age and you know i'm starting to i'm Let's get rid of the masks, Brady. I'm on I'm, your side. I'm, Obviously, not now, not now. But I'd love to see them gone for September. Oh, I'm I'm April, April. Uh, I know you are. I don't. I know you are. I'm not sure what my fully vaccinated 15 year old now that he's with unvaccinated people. There's two things that I think have happened. One, tell me if you agree with this that. I, you don't necessarily care if your kids are around um, unvaccinated people. You care less maybe than you did six months no, ago. No, but that happens every day. They're at school. Not all of those kids are vaccinated. That right. happens. I mean, when they're actually in person, it happens all the time. Even the older grades, they have my my kids, my older boys have a lot of friends who are whose parents have chosen not to vaccinate them. Over 12 years old and they're not vaccinated. And that's life. That's This is the world we live in. This, this is the society we live in. And that's okay. It's got to be okay. It's, it has to be. Yeah. So I, I've kept hearing this. Well, it's a short-term solution. There's nothing short-term but two years or two and a half years. Masks especially are, at masks that haven't age. Been a short, especially at that age. What have I said? You can staple mine to my face for the next half decade, but I want them off my kids. I want them to live the life that I lived. That's all I ask for now. That's what my existence is about. But they weren't in the middle of a pen. You weren't in the middle of a pandemic, right? That's that we do have to keep that in mind. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I want that too. But I, I never went through a pandemic. 
So we do have to make some adjustments in terms of masks. I think April's a little too early. I don't see that happening. Good luck to you. Thank you. Uh, I'd, I'd love it for September. <laughs> well, you know, we did have the Cold War. The Soviets could have bombed this, could have nuked this at any point in time. <laughs> Dave knows. Like we, we all had plans. We all watched that TV movie the day after. We all were ready to hide under desks. And we, and we thought the nuclear bomb stave would come over Canada. It's an easier geographical reach to come over Alaska and Yellowknife and Whitehorse. And, and the Soviets could have nuked us any one of those days. We were all ready for it. Yeah, we were. Uh, <laughs> you know? I had a, that was the biggest thing we were stressed about as kids. It that, was a great that, era to live in. True, actually. You picked out the corner of the basement that you were going to hide in when the... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Very pleased to have our next guest on. Um, the uh, Ontario Students for COVID Safety is a Twitter account that uh, NDP education critic Merritt Stiles gave some uh, shout out to. They're at Trillium for Safety, and they've labeled six demands. And, and good for them. They're a student advocacy group because I think we've heard too much of the politics of this, of teachers going back and forth. Students get a say also. Like, they should get a seat at the table. And that's the only way a lot of this period gets fixed post-COVID is to allow people to have an opinion and pull up a chair and say what they want and they need at this particular point. From that group is Sophia Alexanian. She's from the Ontario Students for COVID Safety, and she's a grade 11 student at Albert Campbell Collegiate, and she joins me now on Toronto Today. Sophia, great to have you on. Thank you very much for making the time for me and our listeners. Yeah, hi. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really grateful for you for platforming our cause and platforming student voice. That's very important at this time. Uh, so would you like me to kind of introduce the group um, from my perspective as a student? Because you mentioned a Twitter account and our goal uh, is not just to be a Twitter account. I know a mm -hmm. lot of people kind of got to know us from the Twitter thread sh showcasing our demands. Uh, but no, we don't just want to be some sort of online um, platform just to, although it's really good to have that student demand out there, it's, it's not the end goal. You know, I, I don't want to just make Twitter threads. I don't just want to make infographics for people to share on Instagram. Uh, we truly want to take action. We want to organize students to actually have these demands implemented uh, through whatever direct action it takes. So it's not 100%. Yeah, it's not just about a social media presence, although it is really good and it's really good that the education critic kind of is aware of our existence <laughs> and hopefully that translates to some sort of real action taken by our provincial government, but... Well, I'll tell you something. I'll, I'll tell you something, Sophia. I can spot, uh, and, and you're pretty astute too, yeah, I, I think people now can kind of spot grandstanding and doing something to do something and sort of to, to talk the talk instead of walking the walk, I can spot that stuff a mile away. That's not what I see with your group here. And two weeks ago, I think I put out a tweet and I said, kids don't have unions and they don't. And that's not a crack at the teacher's union. My parents taught their whole life and the union's a valuable resource. But you guys need to, you guys get a say and you certainly should get more prominence in discussions about what, what education is, how safe schools are and where we're going moving forward. So I'm happy to plan platform you yeah exactly students are a major stakeholder in this and it's important that we have our own sort of voice well teachers yes are really important and when they advocate for labor rights of having a safe workplace their workplace is our school so it translates hopefully to a safer school for us 
students are also have their own unique needs in this situation and also deserve to have their own voice heard in this. What are so you list a thread um, your your account lists a thread of demands. Uh, I have it in front of me, but lay it out for our listeners uh, in terms of what you think makes for a safe or at least much safer learning environment that might not it might not exist in some schools starting tomorrow. What do you want that you you're not sure is is there and and adequate just yet? Well, uh, to begin with that, I should provide some context on where the demands came from. This came from uh, us in the group reaching out and talking to our classmates over kind of the months of frustration that we had over COVID, seeing what was missing. And all that frustration and kind of hearing the same things mentioned over and over again, that students don't feel safe and this is why, this is what some that is missing. Based on that, we kind of tried to make a more concise list of what specifically students want. So one of that is to continue to collect and report on COVID-19 data in schools. The current plan is to wait until there's a 30% absenteeism in schools among students and staff to report an outbreak. And this is just completely unacceptable to students. Students, you have a right to know about what's going on in their schools and what's going on province-wide with the state of COVID-19 outbreaks in schools. Um, so that's one key point that a lot of students were really anxious about. Another point is that we... While teachers groups have called for proper N95 or KN95 masks for teachers, and from what I hear, they're in the process of granting that, students have yet to be provided with proper masks. And we know that this is an airborne variant. This is an increasingly transmissible variant. Proper masks are needed. So students think that it should be the responsibility of the provincial government to provide the funding and the supplies of these masks students that are so necessary for a safe return to school. Also, um, a lot of students were really concerned that there was a lack of a proper strategy following COVID-19 illness and COVID-19 exposure, that there was a lack of a proper policy for returning to class and making sure people are safe to return to class, which is why a lot of students were really happy about a test to return strategy to have the provincial government support that and make sure that Schools have continued access to PCR testing. That is a huge part of that. And another key point, and this is something that hasn't been really talked about outside of education circles. I only hear educators mention this, and all those students have suffered through this, and they were concerned. Now we're finally mentioning in this is there's a need for a proper virtual school. Yeah. Like currently, the the remote learning option that was being offered by schools was the live streaming of in-person classrooms. This is completely inadequate as an online learning option. A lot of students who maybe feel the need to stay home or want to stay home, they're concerned because it's a, it's a poor quality of education to just have a, a, a in-person classroom be live streamed to you um, rather than have a proper, with a dedicated virtual teacher who can kind of use the the tools available in an online learning environment to try the good education experience like the, hi, the, the people- hybrid let me jump in the hybrid is a total joke so i'm glad you're bringing this up and i have brought that up on this show and uh and i'm so glad you're amplifying it now because to me a, a student like you in grade 11 it's like watching a television show of somebody teach a class they're not speaking directly to you they're not catering to kids that are at home and if kids need to stay home or feel the need in in these first couple months uh, to stay home sophia they should and they should get a dedicated service and a dedicated teacher not just video 
video of somebody teaching a live classroom. It's a joke. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like it's not really understood by people who are outside of that environment of how, how much of an exact joke this is. Like, consider a chemistry classroom, right? The live in-person class is doing a lab. And, you know, what are the online students supposed to do? If it was in a virtual, like, is the teacher supposed to plan some sort of online activity and the lab, on, and that puts pressure on the teacher and they're not at their best? And also considering that the teacher is teaching the in-person class at the lab because they're using Bunsen burners. There's, there's clear risk. They need full supervision. And the teacher is also supposed to cater to online kids. So who gets lost in the shuffle? You know, it's, it's, it's both the in-person students and the online students. You nailed it. Exactly. It's the online students. Is you mo- know? It's mostly the online students. Um, I'm tight for time here, but I want to point people towards your account. Tell me in, in a minute uh, what the next step is. Are, how, how, can, how can you get on conference calls? How can you link up with teachers and say, we've got your back, but we want you to have ours. This can't just be about what, what a teacher's union determines or a school board determines. We have a voice. Our parents pay the taxes for us to come to school. That matters too. So how do we get our voice heard more? What happens next? Well, we're really lucky that there's a large overlap between what we want and what teachers groups, school boards, what they also want, because it's all evidence-based demands, evidence-based claims that are all essential for safety. Safe schools matter to all of us, all all the stakeholders present. But the next steps would be to really organize students within their individual schools to take a stand, to reach out to their teachers, to talk, to organize some form of direct action. Our group was inspired by the students in Manitoba who Mm -hmm. staged a walkout on Monday to protest their unsafe return to school. That sort of direct action could really get the attention and show that we do have power as students. So Mm -hmm. those are hopefully the next steps. Will you stay in touch with our show on this? I, I, I'm just, I'm so pleased that you were on. I'm so happy you made the time for us. And I know uh, you, you, you want to get back to in-person also and, and road test this, but also ask for more things. And, and don't stop using that voice. It's so vital. I, I know how much you want this all over with, but it's got to be done the right way. And we got to navigate this for students like you. I think we've wronged you guys and girls by not doing enough in the last year and a half for students. We've worried about everything else and we've put you guys last. It's no good. Yeah, thank you so much again for platforming this. And yeah, we will keep in touch because this is going to be an ongoing thing. This is going to be a fight until we do really have safe schools in Ontario. Now, if I told you, this is numbers from the Canadian Institute for Health Information, hospitalizations, right? We've talked a lot about it with COVID. How about 4,300 additional hospital stays for chronic medical conditions related to alcohol? That could be pancreas, uh, you know, a pancreas problem. That could be liver disease. And that's in the first 16 months of the pandemic in Canada. And last I checked, we're a lot deeper into 16 months. We all know people who, you know, they go through a breakup or job loss or something or death of a family member. And um, alcohol might be something they turn to, but it's for a brief and finite period of time. That's not what's happening here, and it's greatly, greatly concerning. Um, I want to bring on our next guest. He's a family physician with Unity Health in Toronto, and he was quoted in a recent newspaper article on this, and it's an important light uh, to shine upon uh, a crisis, one of many. Uh, COVID is one, but there are many. Dr. Andrew Pinto is our guest on Toronto today. Dr. Pinto, thank you for making the time for our listeners today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, I lay that out there, and like I said, oftentimes people who are not 
alcoholics, high functioning or, or otherwise, might, you know, dip into um, alcohol a little bit to get them through a brief and finite period of time. As I mentioned, that's not what this pandemic has been and something that they might have thought, well, you know, this will get me through three or four weeks. We're, we're talking about 100 weeks or pretty close to it now. And, and people are clearly still having having a struggle uh, putting alcohol aside. That's exactly right. And it's something that I'm seeing in my in my clinical work. And it's also what the numbers are showing in terms of the research that's been done, that people during this time, there has been an increase in, in people drinking. Um, it kind of has focused on folks who are more middle-aged, so people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, um, many of whom are dealing with a lot of different stresses at the same time uh, during the pandemic. Um you know, work that's been done earlier in the pandemic asked people what were, why were they turning to alcohol? And it was because of the things that you mentioned, social isolation, stress, um, feeling bored, um, feeling lonely, and dealing with things like insomnia or not being able to sleep. <sighs> so th- this has become a, a, a big issue. And it is associated with um, these, uh, really the lockdown and the public health measures that have been put in place um, to help protect our health system. But we've, we're seeing that folks are sometimes turning to alcohol. And what's, I think, a key issue is it's it's concentrated in folks who are dealing with other important social issues like uh, not having enough income, the stress of not having work, um, and being isolated from other folks. And Dr. Pinto, this is also, you know, in this a year close to two years now uh we've had uh we've had our far curtailed uh, we've curtailed our our ability and we've been limited whether it's by choice or not to be able to socialize so whether it's been traveling where we might have an extra drink or two university students have had a much different existence uh work parties those have been you know cut down to a bare minimum and yet we're still seeing this problems which which tells anybody that people are drinking at home they're drinking in isolation they're drinking as a couple a husband a wife a boyfriend girlfriend and it's still leading to these problems yeah, indeed, we did see that there was a drop in alcohol consumption for people who are younger um, from, from most, which was because of things like closing bars and restaurants and, and young folks not getting together for parties with others. So that that did happen too, but exactly, this is now kind of a way that people are coping with stress um, and coping with isolation um, and and just the struggle that they're going through. And it's another example of how during the pandemic, we've not all been experiencing it the same. We know that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, folks who are dealing with low income who have been out of work have been really uh, challenged. This is one of the reasons, you know, I really want to convey to listeners is this is a really important issue for your health and to reach out to your family doctor, to reach out to um, your caregivers, to, to be able to, you know, open up about this because there are things uh, that can help folks with with dealing with the stress that's not turning to alcohol. Dr. Andrew Pinto is our guest, a family physician with Unity Health in Toronto. I'm glad you went there, and I'm glad you said that because that leads me to ask if you're seeing people, um, you know, that are, you know, again, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers who 
maybe I could say this anecdotally, and, and you owe them confidence and anonymity, they'd be the last people you think would have a problem. But the pandemic has turned a lot of lives, uh, it pushed a lot of lives off their axis, and all of a sudden they are having those kind of struggles with, with a substance, with some form of, of abuse or at least excessive use. Yeah, it's and, it, and it, as you say, it sometimes can start um, gradually where people are coping with um, with things like stress by having a few extra, and then it becomes part of a daily routine, mm-hmm. and then it becomes something that they then need uh, to help cope uh, with things, and even you know, you know, just to to deal with things like anxiety and loneliness. It's also alcohol is something that is fairly socially acceptable. Um, we know that about two thirds of Canadians um, have had a drink uh, in the last month or so. So it's it's a very common behavior, but it's it can be very easy that it kind of slips into routines, becomes something that that we rely on. So then it, it, the question is how how can we try to help people outside of this? And so one is being able to talk with someone who is a is a member of your health team to cope with what's going on, to, to open up, to seek support if you're dealing with uh, anxiety, dealing with things like grief. That's been something that I've seen in my own practices. Folks who have lost uh, people during the pandemic, a lot of them are struggling with the grief. It's been very hard to, yeah. to grieve losses uh, during this time. And um, to be able to you know, reach out and, and find other ways to cope. One simple kind of thing can be, be having someone to talk to, um, which could be a counselor or a therapist, but also kind of things with our routine, like making sure we're getting outside, getting you know a bit of exercise each day, um, making sure we're trying to you know have a good night's sleep and turn off devices and things like that uh, at nighttime as well. Dr. Andrew Pintz was our guest on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. He's a family physician with Unity Health in Toronto. We're talking about the data and his own experience as a family physician with with just people drinking more. It's fueled more hospitalizations. It's fueled more issues within families. And you bring up something that's really, you know, so interesting and compelling right now. And that is as we're locked down right now with the weather being, let alone the last two days with the weather being what it's been. I think a lot of people said, you know what, I'll, I'll put the wine bottles away when life returns to normal. And I won't drink as much when I, when the gym reopens or when my slow pitch league starts again. Well, those things haven't exactly materialized and they haven't been consistent either. So to your point, um, we, we don't have that that balance where I can say, well, you know what, I'll, I, I don't mind eating and drinking a little more because I can get back into the gym and work it off. Right? We don't have those outlets for us right now. So it just sits there and it gets worse. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very tough time. And I know that um, we saw a real relationship between the hospitalizations related to alcohol and um, the, what people can do. So people have to, you know, think about ways that they, they can um, get out and get some exercise, even if things like the gyms are closed. I, I end up talking with a lot of patients about just the benefit of earlier in the day, getting outside, getting some fresh air, trying to go for a brisk walk, getting on your boots, um, you know, doing things that um, expose us to to nature, to fresh air, and also, you know, being able to connect with other people safely outdoors, where the risk of transmission is of COVID is is much lower, um, in a in a safe way, and doing doing those types of things. You know, part of my work is also as a researcher at, at Unity Health, and 
um, we look at kind of what how COVID has affected different folks in our society. Mm-hmm. And this this type of, you know, advice and ways of coping is particularly important for folks who are struggling with their work or income or other other sorts of things uh, that are that are impacting them. Um, so one one thing as a society is we need to make sure we're actually putting the resources like mental health and counseling towards communities that are going to be the most affected um, by 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 the things like uh, the lockdown. Mm. Last thing for you, what are you seeing? I'm, I'm pivoting here, but I think our listeners would be curious about it. And I got a couple text messages about it while we're talking to you. What about weight? Uh, it's just it's patently obvious that, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not speaking just personally. We've all probably put, you know, an, an X amount of pounds on. But some people have probably who haven't, you know, been able to get back into a routine for whatever reason because um, they're not as mobile or they work from home. Um, there's just less hustle and bustle. They just haven't been able to take those pounds off uh, since the pandemic started. And it's getting worse. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a major issue. I mean, you take almost everybody, and people are working from home. They're not um, they're not engaging in, in active transportation, like getting out just even to get to work. Um, and it it is a real issue. The one thing I'd say is is it's important to also take time and to to not pour on kind of the shame and mm-hmm. and feeling like oh I've gained this weight and it's it's so bad and I'm unable to control myself and it's really about taking time to recognize this is something, you know, we're all affected. And while weight gain is something that happens gradually, it's also weight loss can be part of that. And doing things that are just, in general, good for your health. So trying to uh, eat lots of fruits and vegetables, um, try to get a bit of activity, taking breaks uh, from work. As simple as, and you see lots of folks doing this during kind of the lunch hour, even if you're working from home, get outside. Get get some exercise. Put on, you know, your boots and uh, and uh, try to get some uh, exercise and activity. This this will you know come to an end. This will um, things will open up, and uh, we we can just remain hopeful for that. And and also connect with other folks. You know, reaching out and having somebody who you yeah. you know challenge each other to to engage in these kinds of healthy behaviors can help a lot too. Dr. Pinto, thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate it, and uh, I hope we get to chat again. I, I, I really found this insightful this morning. Thanks for making the time for our listeners. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. You got it. Dr. Andrew Pinto's family physician at St. Mike's Hospital. There's a lot there. Um, and, you know, you might say, well, it's a tough call to say this person needs Alcoholics Anonymous. This person needs a service just because of behavior during the pandemic. But what would you – well, well, they didn't drink that much in 2017 or 2018. So what? What does that mean now? Heavy drinking leads to chronic illness. That leads, it's it's this revolving door, okay? It'll keep spinning around and around. And we're not talking about, like it was almost funny. Oh yeah, beer and wine sales have gone through the roof in May of, or June of 2020. It's not a lot of people laughing at the people that have been drinking, drinking, drinking in this process since then. Um, I get it. And some of it has been social. Let's not forget, of course, some of it's been social in backyards and after a golf game and people have gone places. But the the outlets just haven't been there. And I can I'm a social drinker. I like to drink when I'm up and things are good. If I'm down, if I'm depressed. That's not it. Just it isn't something that I'm that I'm into. Um, but that's sure isn't the case for an awful lot of people that have documented this, that I know in my own life have had things uh, go against them the last 20 months or so. 
So we've had this delay, really, for in-person learning. We would never get really metrics. Uh, we'd get emotions. We'd get responses as to how parents, teachers, um, you know, kids all thought it went. But we're kind of still on hold for this. I want to bring on Dr. Monica Howe, who's the Associate Medical Officer of Health for Peel Region and uh, the lead physician supporting school reopening plans in Peel Region. Dr. Howe, first of all, thank you for making the time this early. Um, I, I thank you. I thank Dr. Lowe. We've had Patrick Brown on a lot. I, I think you've all been really uh, innovative and, and accountable and great leaders during this entire run. So I wanted to thank you for that and, and making the time. I think we need more like the three of you. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for having us. Of course. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I lay that out there at the beginning and we uh, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of raw emotion. I think we've realized there are elements of the pandemic that have, how would I put it, political aspects to it. Schools are one of those things. But um, but what do you see and what's been some of the work like for you in the last two weeks to ensure uh, a safe return to in-person learning for kids and teachers alike? Yeah, so certainly um, we know that uh, there's, as you say, a lot of uh, emotions uh, running with the return of kids to school. And I think overriding it is this, um, all of the, uh, all of it is, is trying to arm parents with information and their kids on how they can reduce their risk of COVID-19 when they do return. So in the last couple of weeks, what we've really done is enable um, uh, enhanced access to vaccinations, which is the most important prevention measure that you can take to uh, prevent COVID-19 and complications of serious illness. And so uh, we know that uh, vaccine access for educators has been in um, a priority and they've been able to um, get access to booster doses the other um, really important feature that we want to uh, uh, really enhance is uh, access for five to 11 year olds. Those who have you know, most recently been approved for the vaccine and we're still um, uh, really encouraging high first doses. So things like that, um, you know, reminders around masking, mm-hmm. uh, good ventilation, uh, screening every day and keeping your kids home if they're sick. All of those combination of measures has been really important to help prepare for back to school. Doctor, what do you see in your region for, I mean, um, anecdotally, it sounds like uh, 5 to 11 vaccines is around the 50% range. Maybe it's grown a little bit, but I've heard 12 to 17 is closer to 80, 85%. There's been a lot of uptake and and they've had longer periods of time, no question about it, about seven seven months now uh, for 12, for, for high school students in grade sevens and eights to get vaccinated. What are the numbers that you see in your region? Yeah, so um, that's exactly uh, it, is around uh, the 12 to 17 year old age group has had more time and we're really impressed with how, like overall the uptake in the vaccination community, we know it continues to grow. So yes, it's around 75 to 80% for that particular age group. And for the 5 to 11 age group, uh, we are seeing around uh, around 44, 45% now with the first doses. And we, um, you know, are really uh, impressed with 50,000 of these kids in Peel getting vaccinated already, and we'd love to see that number grow grow higher. Dr. Monica Howes, our guest, uh, joining us, the Associate Medical Officer in Peel Region on Toronto today on, Glo- on uh, 640 Toronto. Let me ask you about uh, two things that are I think people have asked questions about. There's, there's contact tracing and there's uh, sort of test to return, or, or as it's called in the States, test to stay. I think we're wondering about, about testing to be able to come back for teachers or students that have had uh, symptoms 
and tested positive for COVID. I think those are um, important safeguards. I think the tracing, and I think a lot of epidemiologists agree on this, it's so out of control right now. Omicron's run so, I, I think it'd be. A, I think there's better places to put resources. Give me your thoughts first on the ability to trace. It's really, really difficult uh, to be able to get into schools and classrooms and cohorts and, and trace the virus at this point. Yeah, I would agree with that. At this point, uh, we know that it is a highly transmissible virus, um, but thankfully it is less severe. Um, The reliability of your ability to test, trace, and isolate is um, certainly hampered by the speed, but also with the tools that we have available at this time. um, You know, the Ministry of Health has really directed health units to focus on the highest risk settings where we do know um, the more vulnerable uh, individuals may be in hospital, long-term care, retirement homes, or other um, congregate living settings like shelters. So we're focusing our efforts. We we know we want to have the biggest impact to protect the most vulnerable. Um, that's not to say that we're, we're not uh, focusing our efforts on as much as we can on kids, of course, and, and staff, of course. And uh, so we're really moving to and shifting um, the approach to, to COVID uh, in general community settings like schools and childcare to one of a symptom management approach, similar to other cold and flu viruses out there. What do you yeah. what do you see, uh, Doctor Howe, in your hospitals uh, right now? Um, some documentation in Ontario suggested that there there are some pediatric admissions, but most are zero to five. And I do think parents do bring their kids. This is a high time for rotavirus season. I know, of course, some of that is COVID related, but the the data I'm seeing. I don't want to say there's practically nobody in a hospital from age six to forty-six, but this seems like there is a, um, a you know a pediatric level that we're we're watching carefully, and then almost everybody else practically being hospitalized seems to be over fifty. What are some of the demographics you're seeing? I think that'd be so helpful for our listeners. Yeah, so we're certainly keeping an eye on the hospitalization data very closely because um, that is the ultimate outcome that we're we're really uh, concerned about. And what we have, what we do see is that um, although the number of hospitalizations are are high because of how transmissible it is, we are seeing differences um, both in kind of the length of stay for people than compared to other variants. Uh, they seem to be like able much to better than Delta, much there. shorter stays than Correct. Delta, isn't it? Yeah. Correct. Less need for ICU admission, mm-hmm. and within the pediatric population, those less than twenty. Um, it is still the lowest age group for hospitalization compared to every other age group. And within that, it is the zero to four um, that is that age group that is an ineligible for vaccination, the smaller lungs um, that may um, have the highest risk of hospitalization within the, the kids, but still overall um, lower compared to, uh, to others. Thank you very much for your insight this morning. Like I said, uh, you know, I, I think you and, and Dr. Lowe have been, uh, you've been great guests with our radio station and, and for putting uh, data and concepts of how to, how to stay safe out there. Thank you very much for making the time for our audience today. You're welcome. Thank you. You bet. Dr. Monica Howe, Associate Medical Officer of Health for Peel Region. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We appreciate it. We're back with a live show tomorrow on 640 Toronto at 530 in the morning, all the way through till nine o'clock. So check us out in any of those windows over three and a half hours. And we'll have another podcast for you right here. Please feel free to subscribe, tell a friend and spread the word. Thanks very much and have a great Tuesday.